वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the two cultures again. We think about the sciences and humanities and speculate on the genesis, present and the future of this dichotomy. What may have led to the death of the polymath? What is interdisciplinary studies and where is it headed? We'll touch upon concepts like uncertainty, entropy, modernity, internet in some form. existentialism and others potentially get into the role of royal society education and capitalism in this discussion we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers around the table today professor praful lakar who taught english at ms university baroda and is currently a director of center for contemporary theory and balwant park center for general semantics and other human sciences his area of interest is literary theory and he did his phd thesis on sol bello professor ms raghunathan who is a mathematician and a number theorist working at the intersection of number theory and geometry lie groups He is currently the head of the National Center for Mathematics at IIT Bombay. And Kunal Shah is the founder of Free Charge. He studied philosophy while in college, but has been a technology entrepreneur since, and is very passionate about human behavior in general and implications of behavioral economics. Rafulla, maybe we set the ball rolling with you uh, to understand how we've reached where we are. How would you look at the dichotomy? Is it a dichotomy at all? And whatever C.P. Snow said in his 1950s lecture at Cambridge, uh, what relevance did it have then? What does it have now? And how would you think of it as a social scientist and a literary theory person? Okay, that's a good way to begin. Yeah. <laughs> C.P. Snow. gave this i can say brilliant lecture at cambridge 1959 i think that was the year and uh, he talked not about the dichotomy between humanities and social science as such yeah but about the lack of uh, mutual respect almost mutual understanding and respect yeah between the two disciplines and he thought that 1950s beginning of the 60s that was the time when lots of interesting developments were taking place in the world yeah of course in various realms of thought yeah at that time it was an opportune moment for the two disciplines to come together he used the term assimilation mm-hmm. an interesting term why there is resistance among the humanists mm-hmm. to assimilate some of the ideas of science right right so the diffusion the, is from science to humanities from science it was actually a way of 
not the, the, the social scientists and the literary people are not trying to understand what is happening in the world of science. Right, right. So they're not able to assimilate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting things that are happening in, uh, in the world of physics and in other, other kinds of sciences. And there was no attempt on the part of the literary scholars or on the part but of C. the C. philosophers. But C.P. Snow himself kind of lived in both the worlds, didn't he? C.P. Snow started his career as a, as a scientist. He worked at the Cavendish lab. Then he gave up and became a novelist. Yeah. <laughs> so in a way, he struggled both the worlds, the world of the humanities and the world of the sciences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Unfortunately, he was neither a good scientist nor a good <laughs> novelist. So he was, a, he, was like, he, he was like a jack of all trades, but he was a master of none. <laughs> and uh, if that is what he was trying to promote here, and Lefar Levis, his criticism said that he was uh, accusing him, trying to trivialize both the disciplines. Right. <laughs> no, it's not a question of uh, establishing a dialogue between the two disciplines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dialogue is an interesting thing. The dialogue should take place. But these are two distinctive cultures. Yeah. You think so? I mean, these are no, no, two that distinctive is the cultures? Levis's point. I'm saying that right. Levis is F.R. Levis. Right, right, right. Three years after this lecture was delivered by C.P. Snow, hmm. he hmm. also gave a lecture at, Cam at Cambridge. Hmm. And uh, he was uh, absolutely satirical and very, you know, used his vituperative comments on uh, the idea of the, you know, why should a scientist, if you want to be a scientist, you can always develop your scientific culture independently of knowing what is happening in the art of the humanities. That's interesting. Professor MSR, how, how you know, that's... Very interesting. I mean, you you were probably some somewhere around there. What is what is your take on it? And do you think knowledge can be split into two two broad brackets? Well, you know, I mean, um, <coughs> there's certainly a, a certain amount of lack of understanding between the two communities, the right. community of <coughs> scientists on the one hand and the people pursuing humanities on the other hand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is, uh, I, I cannot say that there is no mutual respect. In fact, uh, very often, even without understanding what a scientist does, there is respect. The people in literature do respect. <laughs> show great respect to them. Right. And in, <clears throat> on the other hand, uh, the scientists uh, very often don't pay much attention to other disciplines outside science. Very often they do not. Right. Especially the applied scientists, the technologists. Right. Once, uh, the pure scientists do tend to take some interest in uh, things like literature and things of that kind. So you're drawing a distinction between science and technology here. There almost. is, uh, again, right. uh, maybe right. there are three cultures, so to speak, if you right. like. I mean, the technology is probably a little different. Uh, the culture Correct. among the technologies is probably a little different from and what happens technology among the lies somewhere in the middle or it's even further left to no, science? I think it's uh, science is in the middle, is what right. I would say. Science pure pure science, people pursuing pure science are in the middle, so right. to speak. Right, right, uh, right. There, I mean, when no, in, in pursuing pure science, you're not really concerned with day-to-day -day problems of uh, human beings. In, and you're really concentrating on understanding the world. So, so to on speak. this continuum of humanities, sciences, and technology, it's technology which is closest to the real world. Yes, in some I would way. think so. In I would think so. Way. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's a little uh, it's difficult to say that, but that. you know, yeah, right. the, after all, uh, a literary person is always interested in the human condition. Yes. And in that sense, he's closer to yes uh, things happening, so to speak. 
Right. The, the technologist is uh, more concerned with practical considerations, not the feelings and things are kind, which is the domain of the humanist. Right, right. No, that's very interesting. That's so, very interesting. Well, Kunal, how, how, how do you think of that? Because at some level, you know, you, you've done consumer internet for a while, you're running a company which is probably on this continuum that we just spoke about closer to closer to the real world, taking care of very utilitarian needs. Uh, would you would you agree with that conception of where technology lies vis-a-vis the others? Uh, I would agree uh, that uh, that at some point of time, it was purely that. I, 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 I think the technology products that were built were uh, kept, made with uh, 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 problem in mind, not humans in mind. Right. Uh, and and right. Uh, slowly, uh, we are seeing that uh, most large success stories that have come now are keeping humans in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example I would give is uh, uh, a not a, a great technology product, but something that has kept the world entertained is a game called Angry Birds, yeah. uh, <laughs> which was made mm-hmm. with a lot of science behind it in terms of what it does, but it was kept with a thing that we will not have language as a barrier in the game. Right. It'll be right. Uh, something that... A you play with gestures and, and six-year-old will enjoy as well and, right and will ensure that you no know, it has a global appeal and uh, i think that's where the humanities are now coming in where a lot of companies uh, mm. Uh, mm. including ours uh, where we are talking about trying to bring you know a different discipline than just a very uh, pragmatic uh, problem uh, a solution problem kind of an solution approach, approach. and, right, and right. Uh, thinking of humans first versus problems first right is changing right. the behavior and i think uh, interestingly the and when you say human kunal you mean human shown off languages human yes. shown off culture uh, human uh, shown off uh, human emotion human feelings human needs uh, right uh, when we talk about uh, like uh, one of the statement that the twitter co-founder made uh, which he said uh, somebody asked him that how do you make a a billion dollar company right and what he said is that uh, think of the most uh, basic human desire and use modern technology to remove the steps and there you have a billion dollar company remove all the obstacles in the remove middle. all the obstacles right Beautiful. so right. Uh, and right. and it, it's it's amazing a lot of these uh, founders are um, means look at facebook or twitter or or, or even google for that matter uh, is is paying so much attention to this uh, topic now that uh, they are making uh, for example a square which is a payments company yeah. has a uh, equal amount of people who are from the design background right. than from the coders who coders write code. Like, and right. when I met the the co-founder, uh, one of the co-founding team member, he said the first team had only one programmer and seven designers when the company wow. started. And, and wow. it was quite amazing for me to hear that because uh, it's a way of saying that we will think of design and human first hmm. and then really come to the problem. Hmm. 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 That's very interesting. Has, has I mean, I think at some level this kind of takes us back to the conception of knowledge and what knowledge is, because it's at some level it is some kind of a knowledge that influences and dictates uh, decisions, whether in a company or in a, in the theoretical realm. Uh, Prafulla, what is knowledge, and is that at an ontological level split into the two or three brackets that we're thinking of, or it's, See, it's knowledge was unified, right? As I told you before, right? Before the 17th century, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. knowledge was one. Mm-hmm. So there was no dichotomy between philosophy and science. Mm-hmm. Most of the philosophers were scientists. Aristotle right. was a scientist. Descartes was a scientist. Right, right. So there right. was this kind of uh, using the word consilience. Consilience, of course. Consilience between the two disciplines. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was very happy union. There was no problem at all. 
Right. People, if you're doing your work in your own laboratory and produce great work of science, yeah, yeah, that is also and within the field of science, yeah, science yeah. is not one. There are many kinds of science taking place within the within one realm. So why you need to jump from your discipline to another discipline and trivialize that conversation? Right. So right. that is why I said that the conversation can take place even within one discipline. Right. And uh, right. that that is what is happening. That's very so interesting. So there is there is no. That's Today very there is, interesting. There is no. We have we began with the Greek philosophy, where science and the humanities came but together. fused together. Yeah. And until the 17th century, there was no problem at all. Yeah. From 17th century, as you said, 1950s, around that time, yeah. there was this it, division, tussle between science and humanities. Correct. And again, correct. there is a kind of confluence of interest between the disciplines. It's almost a certain kind of tradition of certainty that's set in. Yeah, yeah. Heisenberg yeah. actually wrote a very powerful book called Physics and Philosophy. Yeah. Wonderful yeah. book. And he is more knowledgeable about philosophical development than the philosophers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because that book is about more talks more about philosophy and the science and the vice versa, the influence, the quantum physics, for example, the kind of influence quantum physics had on philosophy. Right. The uncertainty principle, right. the relativity principle, all these ideas somehow percolated into the mind of the philosophers. And existentialism and all is, existentialism is almost an offshoot of that. Heidegger yeah. was a product of that. All the great philosophers of France also learned a lot from these But wasn't scientists. Kierkegaard already there in the 19th century itself? I mean, isn't no. that the... I mean, obviously, there are many, was not that many antecedents. Yeah. Right, right, but some of these right. contemporary philosophers, like, you know, and uh, the scientists were also in interesting. They were also philosophers to some extent. Einstein was a great philosopher, we can say. Right, right. Richard right. Feynman, you say, is a great philosopher. That's very interesting. Professor yeah. MSR, well, do you... Um, I mean, what is your take on this? And no. isn't mathematics very pure? And does mathematics have a technological side as well? Well, there's a lot of applied mathematics. In fact, in recent years, the kind of very sophisticated mathematics has been used in applications very seriously. Right. Especially right. in IT industry and places like that. Cryptography. So, in cryptography, yes. Applications of number no, theory almost. Uh, uh, C.P. Snow's friend hardly prided himself on, on being a theoretician. On his, on his mathematics being totally useless. Correct. No longer true. His mathematics is being used today. It's no Correct. <laughs> so uh, the way it uh, happens is uh, it's difficult to predict what kind of mathematics is eventually become useful and so on. Right. So it, it, it does, in fact, there's... But what propels a mathematician to be doing pure maths? Well, it's the same impulse as that of an artist, if you like. I mean, it's, right. a, it's a search for beauty. Aesthetics is the main uh, drive right. behind most of mathematics. Of course, there's also some inspiration which does come from the real world. Right. Real world problems can be modeled on the basis of mathematics and then people do work on such problems. That's interesting. But not everything is, uh, has its sources in uh, practical problems. In fact, uh, most, most of the mathematics which uh, we have uh, developed over the centuries has its origins in purely aesthetics, really. Right, the right, Mathematical right. constructs which were thought up by mathematicians were further developed and they started analyzing the construct themselves and it's kind of highly So that internal. itself is a very Anthropocene kind of pursuit in, in, in some way. It is, it is a pursuit no, see, of... The point is, I think uh, the pursuit of aesthetics has very much to do with the pursuit of knowledge. I don't think the two can be really separated. Right, right, That's, right. That's uh, a search for beauty. Truth is beauty. It's also beauty a search for truth. intelligibility. Right, yeah. right. In right. fact, often what you call beautiful is the result of your being able to understand it. Right. And that is, so it seems there's a close connection between what is intelligible and what is beautiful. 
Right, right. Maybe there's no real distinction in the ultimate analysis. But, but it's a very subjective truth, isn't it? I mean, no, for, for instance, when you say talk of understanding, yeah. it's often understanding really amounts to pattern recognition. You recognize something as the same as something else. Correct. The Correct. Pattern, pattern recognition. Correct. And that is also very much part of uh, at least visual beauty. Correct. You recognize Correct. patterns and that's what makes, to, makes things look beautiful to you. Correct. 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 So, Correct. in that Correct. sense... Uh, Correct. No, that's very interesting. But and, but when you do maths, are there are there intuitions, impulses that you can dip into in the world of literature or in the world of humanities at all? Well, well, I, I'm not, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't know. It's difficult to say. Personally, in my experience, I've never really looked towards uh, humanities for finding something in mathematics, no. Right, but, right. But uh, on the other hand, it is... Uh, I, I certainly recognized what I was doing as look, looking for beautiful things. Right, right, right. Beauty in the internal structure of mathematics, not from outside, coming from outside. Right. And even the applied mathematician, when he does that, he doesn't but does, For example, does mathematics make you look at the world differently? Is that happening? In a sense, yes. Or, or is it is it just know, an exercise it's a, it's a, within in a, mathematics? In a very indirect fashion. You know, right. of, in science in general, you suspend all belief. Yeah. Till you have concrete evidence towards that belief. Yeah. Whereas uh, in humanities, often you talk of suspending disbelief. Yeah. Willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah. So there does seem to be an attitudinal difference between the scientists and the artists, if you like. Yeah, 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 yeah. And no, that that's may, very that interesting. may change yeah. the way you look at the world at large. Mm. Mm. To that extent, mm. yes. The, mm. So Kunal, for example, when you run a company or when you make decisions, whether relating to financing, product launches or whatever, how much of that decision-making is scientific, scientistic, humanistic, technological? What, what does it end up being usually? Uh, it's quite an interesting uh, uh, question. Uh, and, and I'd answer that in two parts. First yeah. part is about, we talked about uh, uh, how uh, belief and disbelief is a starting point. Uh, right. That's right. Uh, mm. And I think it's also because of the interest uh, at the starting point, yeah. I think a lot of humanities, will, uh, uh, the, their mo bigger interest is to find interesting questions constantly, right, uh, and not quickly arrive to answers, right, right, right. I think the scientific method or, or or scientists in general are are in the rush of getting to answers. I think the humanities are very happy living with questions, right, and developing better questions out of it, right. Uh, so and, more and philosophical as an approach. Yes, and and I yeah. think what I've noticed is that uh, when it comes to application companies. Uh, uh, there are two types of uh, uh, applications I've seen where there is an incremental progress that yeah. one makes from something worked uh, and now there are four more variables that we can tweak and see yeah. what kind of outcome it come and let's do some testing and experimentation on that and see how that progresses. Or yeah. one takes an approach saying that, hey guys, let's step back three steps and see what do we really want to do right. and can we even let go of what we've built uh, and start afresh and kind of go in a different direction. What we've noticed constantly is that uh, there are not uh, uh, people who even in technology world are are exactly of the same. When they refactor something, a lot of people are willing to let go of their existing belief uh -huh, and uh -huh. start afresh and I think go back to the drawing board and I think those guys tend to do much more progress within the companies because uh, they, they, they have this thing of not sticking to the belief right? right, and constantly right. doing that. So what we've noticed in an application while well, coming to the second part of the answer is that we've noticed that uh, there are uh, incremental progress that one can do uh, yeah. and, and yeah. a new idea can be come up. So I think we've noticed that companies which come up with 
amazingly innovative ideas yeah. are the ones which did not start with a pre-existing condition, rule, or way of working things, right? Uh, example being someone like uh, Airbnb, which yes, redefined hotel as a business, saying that the human need was to find shelter when they are yes. traveling, yes. not to go to a hotel. So let's go and redefine it's that. Completely and, and, and there are so many right. such examples that we are seeing. And I think more and more such uh, innovations are coming. And, and these businesses become multi-billion dollar businesses in a few years time because they actually go back and address the real human desire. But Kunal, the interesting question is that how does Uber and Airbnb and a lot of these other shared economy type ideas, how do they all come at the same time? It's um, quite interesting. Uh, I think they, they all start with success of few things which may not be successful at in terms of uh, scale, but just the, the epidemic it creates right. in, in usage. For example, something like Foursquare, uh, uh, the, the human need of wanting to check in somewhere and tell people that we are here, uh, or the human need of getting likes on Facebook and, and right. sharing, per right. se, to be able to uh, admire, on a, and the human need of wanting to save, and, and all of that. I think what happens is when we see success in a different format, we say, yeah. hey, this can be applied to multiple things. And we talked about pattern matching. I think pattern recognition, the pattern recognition and, and, yeah. and matching those things, I think the technology world is just thriving on these things right right, uh, right. Uh, for a for our company, what we would notice is how something else is working in a very different world. For example, we we went through a process when, uh, uh, and, and many companies in, in this particular technology things are, are actually making their television ads right now. Yeah. And we noticed that that world is totally creative. Yeah. Right? They yeah. do not talk in the same language that we normally talk about a problem solution, how Correct. do we measure, what impact will it create, and so on and so forth. And it was quite an amazing two months that we spent learning how they look at things, which right. is totally different to what we do. And, and we both exchange notes uh, and sometimes uh, a point comes when both parties kind of give in and say let's just agree, let's to, just and do it. agree to disagree something and just <laughs> go into that and then uh, measure later on because there is no correct way of doing this but at the same time there are companies who have evolved algorithms to predict if the song is going to be a uh, a hit or not or a particular uh, product is going to be hit or not and I think that's where this whole thing of merging those three things are coming now and, and faster than before right 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 I mean how would how would you respond to that Prafulla is there what is the source of ideas and what is the source of I mean are there the questions and the answers do they usually lie in the same bracket I mean or or is it a more rhizomic kind of structure where one thing leads to another at the level of humanity, how does it all link yeah, together? The, the question of rhizome is very important. Yeah. Particularly today. Yeah. Yeah. When we're talking of the the way the knowledge, as Kunal was saying. These are just sheaves and leaves in, interweaving into each in other. Very, in a very surprising context. Yeah. You get ideas which become very productive. Yeah. Yeah. Rhizome is about that. Yeah. Rhizome is a metaphor from biology. Yes, from nature. Of course, of course, of course. It's not a linear movement of the roots, root and the branches. Correct. Sometimes the, the, the roots can also be from the branches of a tree. Correct. Sometimes the roots also move Go in different directions. Correct. Lateral, perpendicular, horizontal, vertical, Correct. like that. Correct. So you do not know from which source a particular knowledge comes. But when you stumble upon a particular kind of knowledge, it's a kind of serendipity that he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's an interesting idea. Maybe I can use it in my company. But what is the structure of knowledge? What is that no, epistemological? That is, that is why the, the idea of mathematics and poetry comes into being. Right, 
Right. Poetry and mathematics are so are very similar. So are, similar in right. thought because they both deal with the idea of precision. Yeah. Not nothing has to be superfluous. Yeah. <laughs> both also deal with the idea of the structure. Right. Right. And mathematics is one science. It is actually neither science nor the humanities. Yes. When it's not in, neither in or. Yeah, yeah. It is neither science nor the humanities. Mathematics is between the science and the humanities. What do you say to it that? It can be both, <laughs> and that's why it, that, 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 is, that is why in the universities, both in the faculty of arts and the faculty of science, we have the mathematics. <laughs> mathematics and what? geography yeah. are the two they belong sciences everywhere. belong to both the humanities and the the sciences because right. it straddles the two worlds. Yes, professor. It is the, it is the connecting yeah. link between the humanities and the 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 sciences. It's very interesting. I, I think I'm inclined to think to it's something. more art than science. It's more it's, art it's, than it's science. It's between the two, certainly, but it's more closer art than to science. art than my, science. My own thinking. Of course, one thinks of mathematics as you know, you read mathematics. It's always statements are made very precise and proofs are given, logical arguments are given, which is all characteristic of science. And so you tend to right. think it's right, right, right. That, that's one source, one way of things are disciplined. But you know. There's another discipline. It just has a different language and a different grammar. Yes, but you know, there is also another factor which uh, in every creative endeavor, there is always a certain tension between uh, imagination and discipline. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Where does the discipline come in mathematics? Yeah. One source, of course, is the rigor in when you make proofs and things are kind. Correct. But there's Correct. another important factor named aesthetics. It's important. You know, it's like... How, how, how is, for example, mathematics different from physics? Physics is, derives its uh, inspiration from, from, from outside, from nature, so to speak. Right. Whereas the mathematician does, to some extent, get some uh, gets influenced by nature, but much more comes from his own imagination. Right. From, right. From, you know, right. From, it's an internal thing. Right. Uh, largely. Right. And there, uh, once again, you know, if you your uh, imagination can run right and it may not be pleasing at all, it may not, it may defy aesthetics. If it does, it's not considered good mathematics. Most mathematicians have an idea of what is beautiful. And that is what drives them. Right. It is an important disciplining factor. So is, is, is there a theorem or whatever out there, uh, Professor MSR, which, you, which is widely believed to be true, but is ugly? Well, <laughs> you know what no. I mean? You know what I mean? The, the, no. Yeah, is something there, ugly? There are theorems which the proofs are ugly. <laughs> the theorems, when, they, when something is said to the theorem, often enough, it is stated as such only because somebody thinks it's beautiful. Correct. And usually there's a considerable consensus with most theorems. Yeah, there are, of yeah. course, uh, charlatans who state theorems which are uh, quite ugly and <laughs> <laughs> one, one is not bothered about them. But there's somehow, it's a very, very peculiar thing, despite the fact that uh, right. you know, aesthetics is often, uh, pe people often say beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. Right, right. So one would think it's highly personal, but there seems to be some common factor which... Let's all the, uh, makes all mathematicians think something common is beautiful. No, but for example, we are on the topic of two cultures. Why should a layman even care about trigonometry or Lie groups? Um, what is there for? Is, I mean, I, I know it's there for the person doing mathematics, there for the person doing physics. So we understand the purpose it serves there. Um, uh, no. I mean, if the layman is not interested in trigonometry, I can it's understand. Fine. Yeah. It, it's yeah. fine with me. Yeah. Except that he should, he should realize that it has some important applications which should be ultimately useful to him. Right. If, if there's that enough, that much consciousness in the layman, I'm happy with that. Right, 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 right. No, right. and uh, very the problem actually arises, at least with trigonometry, you can tell the layman 
what it uses. But there are large parts of mathematics, especially <laughs> number you theory, can't say anything where you cannot, <laughs> you cannot say it has any use, whatever. Maybe you 100 can, years from now. Maybe 100 maybe years from now. That's, that's the best I, one can say. But, you know, history has borne it out. Uh, yes. You know, something like relativity wouldn't have been reality had not Riemann in, invented geometry for purely aesthetic reasons. Riemann, so, Poincar, Lorenz. Riemann, Riemann, Riemann yeah. mainly. Right, uh, right. Invented uh, what is called Riemann in geometry. Of course. Without that, relativity couldn't have been uh, discovered. Of course, of course, of so course. Of when, course. But when Riemann did that, it's purely for aesthetic reasons. Are there, uh, Prafulla, are there things, discoveries, inventions, thoughts, theorems, theories, whatever in the world of sciences which have been influenced by humanities? I think it's D- Does versa. that diffusion happen at all or it's no, just... When you talk of influence, we're talking of as if all these things that take... Uh, in diff- take in separate rooms, in it's not like that, of rooms. course. Right. So one influences the other. So right. until the 17th century, there was no such thing. Right. The influence things comes only when the split has taken place. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, of course, mm. it is a vice versa. Right. Copernicus right. certainly was a great influence on poetry. In lo- lots of 17th century poetry in England, was influenced by the heliocentric system of Copernicus. That's very interesting. That's very John interesting. John Donne, for example. William Shakespeare, they were all influenced by when Copernicus says it's the sun is the center, not the earth. Right. When earth is replaced and sun, right. heliocentric system. Right, right. That brought lots of interesting ideas into poetry. Or Newton's laws and imperialism law, for all you know. Newton's law. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. said that Newton is an interesting, interesting person in the sense that he was operating at a very, very interesting period. That was the time when the schism took place almost. When the Royal Society was formed, science was ascending to some extent. Yes. And that was also the time when colonial powers are pushing ahead. Right. So there was some kind of complicit relationship between science. Some, it's an insidious link, but yes, for, for whatever no, it's no, worth. No, no, there yes. was deliberate complicity between science and the philosophy, uh, and the kind of empire that they're building. Right. And uh, Newton may not be so aware uh, of the this. idea of inertia almost, that if you no, don't no, do something, it won't move. Because the point here is that you are spreading the tentacles of colonialism, you know, to propagate the scientific discoveries that you have made in England. Right, right. Otherwise, right. you are lying in darkness all this time. Right. And we have to give them right. light. And Newton's law of motion, one of the laws of motion, the first law of motion, is exactly about that. A right. body rests... Uh, in a, is it a state of rest or motion? Rest or uniform force motion as it. long as it is impressed upon by an external force to change that state. Right, inertia. Who is that external, uh, the idea of external force? Right. So you, in the Western Eastern society, you are sleeping, <laughs> all uh, uniform motion. Somebody comes from England and gives you a push. You have slept enough, wake up. That is the idea of science. Science comes, right. make you enlightened. Right, right. So somehow there is some kind of interesting relationship between the spread of colonialism and the advent of science in England, and Royal Society has to be implicated in this process. <laughs> That's why Jonathan Swift wrote <laughs> so his Gulliver's Travels, the book of Laporta, is a critique of Royal Society, how Royal Society has distorted science by making it more and more by putting analytical, it in the ivory taking right. it out of uh, speculative and uh, kind of uh, theoretical uh, Realm science into, to right. practical, productive, which actually in the, the dogma of, of certainty. I mean, 
that is the kind of thing. I think the the mic transfers to the so royal the society, society, society now. <laughs> Alexander Pope, 18th century poet, made fun of royal society. Right. Many 18th century writers made fun of royal society because they say that that's the villain because they split signs and one signs went in theoretical way and those other signs went in analytical way which produced technocracy and uh, you can say that if you stretch that uh, i think it's about trajectory, we, get, we get the royal it, society it, award <laughs> it, it, it is royal society no, no. science that produced a man like hitler right <laughs> so you can say that the, the production of that, that that is the kind of technocracy technocracy right and technocratic science this science right. scientific science Right. That produced a man like Hitler. Right. So that right. is the kind right. of split that took place. <laughs> I, I would right. I would describe the Royal Society more as a trade union rather than. <laughs> 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 That's what I mean. I'm just giving the viewpoints of those people who, who wrote against anyway, by the Royal way, Society. That's Pope, very interesting. Pope who criticized the Royal Society, you say. Very much. Also, he praised on on a, on its greatest uh, member, greatest fellow, who? Newton. Newton, who? of course. Pope. Let. Pope Alexander Pope. Uh-huh. There is this poem in which he says, "God said, let Newton be, and there was light." Newton came, and there was light. Of course. Yeah, but right. Newton, as I, that, that, that said, and Newton. If Newton had not been there, royal society would have been <laughs> the long since dead. Newton was at the at the point of transition. <laughs> right. He was at the beginning. He was a philosopher. Right. Then. The Royal Society came and it became a part of Royal Society. Right. So he was moving, making a transition from a theoretical science, which right. was philosophical science, right. into the analytical science <coughs> that was taking shape. Interesting. So he was a why? transitional figure. Right. And the Alexander Pope says about Bacon, hmm. the hmm. brightest, the wisest, and the meanest of the human beings, <laughs> Francis Bacon. <laughs> he was the royal. He was the, he was the actual the product of uh, that. Maybe kind of that science. had nothing to do with him being in the royal society. No. He was he was <laughs> Francis he, Bacon, and he was what he was. Because he, <laughs> because he lost humanity, he got one of his very good to, um, friends beheaded. Right. Because right. he was standing in his way when he was trying to do something promote science. Right. This man was always opposing him all of his sex. Why don't so we? Now, why don't we think of uh, the topic of pedagogy and how teaching happens and has that taken a split also somewhere along the way, Professor Amesar? Unless you well, wanted well, to talk uh, about something in, else. In, in, in a way, yes. In fact, already, uh, uh, no. Snow talks about it. Yeah. About the education system in Britain and so on. in our country too. For instance, now. Yeah. Present. There is much greater emphasis on science than on humanities. Yes. Right. And very often, scientists complain that there is not enough money for science. Correct. There is even much less money for humanities, as far as I can see. <laughs> there is no support for research in various disciplines in humanities. Correct. Whereas, in fact, there is plenty of money available for. Uh, for the science. For sciences right. in general. Right. Of course, right. Uh, it's uh, our scientists may complain it's not adequate. Maybe there's something in it, but certainly in comparison to the people in humanities, uh, these, these are a rich lot. There's right. no question about that. But institutions that have taken a more holistic, rounded approach to pedagogy, mixed sciences and humanities like IITs, for example. I mean, IITs they... don't really mix. I mean, they, you know, they have one humanities department, yes, in, in IIT Bombay, for instance. Correct. Correct. And uh, I mean... Th- the, the, the students in the technology courses are, take uh, one, semester, one semester or two semesters at most of humanities. Right. doesn't really expose them to real stuff. And, and also, you know, the courses offered are limited in nature. Right. Depending right. on the faculty they have and so on. Right. It's, uh, right. It doesn't work that way. Right. By the way, right. uh, going back, uh, you know, um, 
even the title of uh, Newton's uh, great work suggests that mathematics stands apart from the sciences. Right, you mean Principia Mathematica. It is, it is the mathematical principles of natural Principia philosophy. Principia Mathematica, yeah. Already there, there is yeah. recognition that mathematics is a little different. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, uh, it is yeah. the intervention of mathematics that ultimately makes a discipline into a science. Right. It, it gives the label science only if you have a definitive, in, you know, intervention of mathematics in that uh, field. Right, right. I think it's a great time to maybe talk about interdisciplinary studies and what's the history of that? Is it genuinely happening? And, you know, there's well, this notion going around that humanities collaborate more than people in humanities collaborate more than fact, the sciences there's, there's not or enough, the other way around. Sorry. There, there's not enough collaboration within scientific fields. Right. If you look at it. Yeah. And it's not, it's not easy. It's difficult. It's not easy. It's difficult because each scientific discipline has become... Uh, super specialized and technical. Super specialized. It cannot, I mean, the... the amount of knowledge that is accrued. So where does oh. it go from here? Because clearly they have to talk to each other. No, you just stage. have to have some gifted individuals who can uh, right. make connections and get in. That's that's the way it works. I don't <laughs> right. think I right. don't think it really works to it make a deliberate decision to have a, level. To, to have a deliberate decision to have a department for interdisciplinary studies and so on. I don't think it makes sense. You should have a person who has somehow a sympathy for two different things. That's very and interesting. Is, and has the correct kind of intellect to push it. Are there, are there, are there people like that around? Is, are there polymaths I, remaining? <laughs> well, the word polymath, well, I don't know. Were you know, well, there ever any polymaths is the question I would like to ask. Right. You know, That's when, a good when point. you want to talk of polymath, only if the different disciplines are already amassed a huge amount of information. Right. All of which you have to absorb before you can really do interdisciplinary work. I mean, right. that didn't happen. That has happened only in the in the last century or so. It's probably happening in companies. It's probably yeah. happening in technology yeah, companies today where people are coming together. So, a few things that I, I'm observing uh, personally is that uh, I think. Uh, uh, the history of science or history of philosophy or history of anything in general has shown that uh, anything that creates a differentiation and progress uh, kind of gets more attention and kind of uh, followed and other things kind of get what, left what behind. What is differentiation? So, what do so you for mean example, uh, let's say when science took off uh, uh, and, and it kind of took a branch out from the Correct. core knowledge piece, it was to the fact that there was some amount of... Uh, uh, no, economic benefit that it kind of brought uh, to the guys who were kind of facilitating and funding some of these initiatives. Of right? course. And, and we, we've reached to a stage where it got to that level where now you're seeing a reverse trend where right. Uh, right. in someone like uh, Google is actually funding for people to go and do their PhDs in humanities now. Right. right, to right. be able to take the next level because they have seen progress in products uh, and, and success in things that have not come out of scientific thing, but more about just having human insights and, and understanding of basic things. So what I'm observing now is that anything that becomes uh, a small club of knowledge uh, right. tends to become important uh, and it's almost cyclical in nature in my right. view that uh, I'm seeing a trend where a reverse trend is happening right, right. Uh, where you're saying hey uh, even in IIT I would say you know, uh, importance of computer science now than what it was before or, or, or when it times, at time of metallurgy was more important and, and so on and so forth I think it's, it's in the sciences you talk about how it's not uh, different I think it's all about what that time demands and what the the culturally right thing to do is at that point of time. What I'm observing now is that uh, right from technology, I'm observing people coming to humanities and learning more and more of it. I, I can assure you that uh, more books on psychology 
right and behavior economics are read by people from technology world right then people from actual humanities uh, if you look at the amazon best sellers uh, uh, 50% of the books were had to do with humanities and they were actually read by people from the uh, uh, it and uh, product and technology world people because they're just going back to the basics and really understanding i think uh, it touched may- upon a very interesting yeah please maybe this is an indication of some of these disciplines which are now called humanities are b- turning into sciences Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, yeah. that certainly happened to economics. Yes, one, yeah. And uh, yes, so people yes. talk of social sciences. One only talked about sociology fifty years ago, and one, one talks of social sciences these days. So, so everything, I, everything so is becoming science. I'll, I'll, I'll give an example of what uh, what Warren Buffett said once uh, about this one thing is that. Uh, uh, He, he, I saw one talk where he, uh, he was with Bill Gates, and they talked about uh, why does Warren Buffett does not invest in technology companies. And the answer was that he said, "Imagine a procession is going on. There's a crowd of people who are out there to yeah. watch, and everybody's of the same height. Yeah. Uh, what do you do to be able to see better? So you use the technology of tiptoeing and seeing. You, uh, you clean uh, your neck up, and, and you, you and you kind of right. see better. But what happens if everybody learns that same science? Then everybody, and everybody is, the is tip, tiptoeing <laughs> and uh, straining their neck to see it. Uh, what we have is the same view and pain in the neck now, right? right? And I think that's right. when it becomes interesting. Where interesting. one technology has come in, and then can you say, okay, can I go back to something else? It's almost this impulse for a competitive advantage from an area where it's a, it's yes. a supply demand and, and economic kind of point. It is not known by almost. many people. For example, in India, uh, right. when I, I mean. when i took a decision of not moving from science and pursue my degree in philosophy uh it was thought to be not the coolest thing of but what for what i thought was the quality of knowledge that i was getting from that was very different in a very different maturity level do you think that's w- given you an edge i definitely for so? sure in fact uh, you know running a technology company being a philosophy graduate for me uh, is an interesting thing because i have means i i go and advise a lot of people at iit bombay now and they respect <laughs> me because i think of a much more uh, a comprehensive way than and and, and think and very you differently you think that philosophical training has something to do with it it's not just it, it, you kunal being kunal it is 100% uh, i i think uh, after the graduation that i went and and for me philosophy was not about Uh, to get an edge in my competitive of world course, it was what to really because i got really interested in you i think it, it has made me think differently especially learning indian philosophy western yeah. philosophy and and other schools and and religion right uh, uh, right i, I right. used to believe in religion and god before i studied philosophy and now i don't because <laughs> now i think differently right, right. and 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 uh, it's, it, it's quite interesting. interesting how how uh, it, at age of 21 you have a very different maturity so i i, I almost felt like i was 10 years older to most people in my thing just because i went through a training right told me how to think right, right? so kunal you've touched upon a top, a point which is very interesting and it's almost this capitalistic side of the whole thing and supply creating demand and demand creating supply almost and how much of it has to do with the way our society is organized with with there just being a greater demand for engineers than historians it's really as simple as that and in a way it links back to the point of pedagogy well, how would you take a look at that uh, profula i mean do people fewer people study and read poetry now and in a more no it's not as kunal says that uh, the humanities as a discipline yeah philosophy literature and the other areas of humanities yeah are being used in the companies and it's a good sign yeah that uh, it is becoming a useful commodity yeah 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 is lifted out of the the dull academic arena but it's almost like humanity is getting its legitimacy because of no no that's not a legitimacy it's become a part of the life world of the community life world yes and right. that is one perhaps 
success story. Yeah. If that is happening, yeah. Yeah. Many technocrats. Yeah. People who are working in many companies, the CEOs. Right. Are using certain insights from the humanities, particularly from religion, from philosophy, Absolutely. from ethics. What What would it be? I mean, no, but you say in a, in a very in a, it's not deliberately. Right. But the insight As comes impulse. from. That's that's the idea of the uh, rhizome is important. Sometimes of from course. invisible sources. Right. 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 You can't even point out to pinpoint that this is the source from which I got my idea. Right. So all these things are there in the air. Right. And they're picking something that is available. It's almost like the bricolage. Bricolage, right. Bricolage is the kind of little stone pieces that are available locally. Right. And put them together and build an edifice. Right. It's an idea from Levi Strauss. Right. Bricolage. Right. So right. So these little things are splintered knowledge available all over the Correct. world. Correct. And Correct. And we can choose something. And An assemblage almost. This right. is, this is the correct, correct. So correct. if this is happening, yeah. And I don't know whether it is a source of uh, success, it is success story, or it is not. It is a story of failure. Right. Because at this point, it is difficult to know whether, you know, success and failure are two opposite things. <laughs> but you may say a failure may also be appear, may be appearing as a success story. Right. So right. that is something. Right, but right. coming back to your earlier question about interdisciplinarity, yes, something has happened, has been happening since the eighties, right, late eighties or the early nineties, right, throughout the world, right, that the humanities and the sciences have come together in some way. Yeah, they're closer than before. Closer together, closer. Not with. There is not much of a vibrant dialogue between the scientists and the philosophers. Right. 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 But there is at least an attempt made to understand each other. What What is the genesis of and that? I said that you know, genesis I don't know. But let us let us examine what is that. Yes. I said that uh, there are certain ideas which come from science which are used by the literary scholars or by philosophers. Yeah. 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 One, one of those, those ideas I have already mentioned. One Which is are those? Right. Rhizome. Deleuze uses it very well. Right. And also the idea of the consilience. Right. The consilience is the unity of knowledge. Actually, the book by Ewa Wilson. Wilson, yeah, of course. He wrote he wrote a book called Consilience. Yeah. And the subtitle is the unity of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. All knowledge is getting getting unified. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you lose your individual identity. And uh, one knowledge collapses into the other. Right. No, it's not. Not that the assimil assimilation. Right. The word of uh, if it's knows word assimilation is not the right word. Correct. Correct. Once you assimilate yourself into the other, you lose your identity. Correct. So you have your you distinct exist. identities. But the distinctive identities at the same time, you are also part of the other. You can say it's like the salad bowl. Right. No, no. The, it's very the interesting. Usual say that in the American phrase, the metaphor, salad bowl. Yeah, it was course. like a melting pot. <laughs> Right. The blacks objected to that idea of the melting pot. That uh, melt when we think that the blacks melt into white. They we objected to that idea. still reserve your identity, <laughs> but you are also white identity. We are black identity, but we understand each other. It's mm -hmm. like salad board. So you can identify all the vegetables and fruits, but it's a part of a whole. Right. That right. holistic kind of things. That is the notion of consilience. Right. Consilience is not just putting everything together uniformized. It's not so A plus B leading to you, C. You become, yeah. you become, you melt into one another and then become one. 
right it's not that right that's very interesting and as professor says that every discipline also has its internal consilience right right interdisciplinary right. is not that you have to learn the other discipline even within your own discipline there are varieties of interpretations how much of, of that happens how much of that happens professor no. msr are, yeah I mean, that is why i say right. that the disciplinary if you are not grounded in your own discipline in the right way you cannot be interdisciplinary you need to stand somewhere you have to have a proper groundedness t shape always have a you somewhere. cannot be interdisciplinary unless your if your foot is loose right then you cannot be you will be you will be floating in the thin air you will not be you need a root somewhere that's very so interesting so you must be rooted so right right we are not disciplinary enough right if you are disciplinary enough we are automatically interdisciplinary right so gradually right. that's, that's you, very interesting that is why your rootedness is very important that's very interesting and uh, that's very that interesting there is there is something that you are coming back to a discipline coming back home hmm. home is from where you can start off right right and if you do not have that groundedness right then you cannot so discipline that is very important professor ms and as, as, yeah. as you go on examining disciplinarity you find disciplinarity is not a unitary concept yeah yeah no. yeah within the discipline there's yeah. so many streams point almost streams of thought that will find mathematics is a discipline is just a mathematics geometry algebra trigonometry all kinds of things are there mathematics is the, is the question of number and how the various combinations of number constitute a different kind of world of symphony right symphony of numbers right that's why it is not something one it's many many no. in one that's understandable that is right. the kind of interdisciplinarity and that has been happening right interesting professor msr does i mean how 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 what is your take on that uh, is it as specialized as that already people in trigonometry having no idea about well within within mathematics for instance yeah. uh, there are very few people who can uh, think about very very different fields i mean for example actually this this development is uh, relatively recent right. 60 years ago right. when i started my career in mathematics 50 yeah. years ago yeah you know i i was you uh, could do everything i, I no I, no sorry you could do everything i i could uh, at I mean, least I, i could think of learning areas. many different things right. many different uh, areas within mathematics right it's not happening any longer i can see many youngsters right were as as bright as i ever was right but they are not able to do that kind of thing because each discipline has enlarged itself so each part of mathematics within mathematics has expanded so much as put it, there is so much information which has been gathered right. it's extremely difficult for someone to have a grasp of everything which is going on so where where would this so, go where would this go in the next 200 years because i mean is there any end to specialization uh, what is supposed to happen it's difficult to predict uh, what what's going to happen it's not uh, it's far from clear to me but you know even uh, for example even in the mid 20th century yeah yeah uh one wouldn't uh, one, one was already thinking that things were too specialized and they cannot have a polymath as you correct so correct but there were in india for instance homi baba was certainly a polymath of course he had interest in so many different things and of course and performed at a very superior level in many different areas of course that's right so one never knows uh, what kind of uh, individual with thrown up in professor now mixed professor was also like yes chandra shekhar yes yes his interest in humanities was uh, much greater than baba's uh, for example yeah he wrote so, books on this, shakespeare on music what yeah. what i mean how do you react to that kunal i mean in this world where epistemologically the specialization is so intense and sharp are companies and startups where where does it all come I'll together give an, i'll give an uh, analogy of uh, how uh, let's say in, in in a world of computer science how things are yes. right say yes. let's say one person uh, learns to 
create specialization in a very very niche field yeah what he's actually doing is by going deep diving into one topic he's creating a simple consumable formula an api almost an api almost it's beautiful for, to, for for other fields to be able to consume it without knowing the intricacies of it right for right. it to work right i think it's important for one to go into deep uh depths of trying to understand what those things are and give a simplistic formula yeah. for other people or other disciplines to consume right i think right uh, right uh, historically that is what has happened uh, yeah. we do not uh think how certain things work we just start consuming it because yeah. somebody has taken the effort of let's take an example of marconi is trying to do radio frequency today we don't think how cell phones are just are able to it just works right, right. and and right. and right somebody took an effort of you know creating that particular thing we today consume it and that is leading to another level of specialization somewhere else right so, I right. think historically knowledge what it's done is when somebody has deep dive into it it's brought back some uh, kind of a pearl back in right. a easy consumable format right they right. probably some of them did not survive some of them died in the yeah. journey of trying to find that pearl but yeah. when they bought a pearl i think that is can collectively help human knowledge to simplify uh, yeah. the world and and simplify how to solve things uh, yeah. uh, that it becomes almost natural to consume these things yeah well, how how do you respond to that profula we yeah, have just no, one or two more minutes to go yeah interesting point could yeah. makes yeah yeah no you cannot uh, consume the entire thing yes the entire knowledge that you have around you yes you have to pick and choose yes and a little thing little idea can perhaps become a productive idea to you to your thinking than the whole thing that you see around yes how does one pick and choose i I'll, i'll i'll give you an example yeah richard feynman yeah had written as uh, he went to a school high school yeah and was speaking to the students of the high school about what is science yeah little essay called what is science yeah and at the end of the essay he used a phrase called time binding yes time binding yes and since i am directing a center called balband parik center for general semantics, semantics. and yes, other human sciences <laughs> the idea of time binding is very important in general semantics so yeah. it's time binding yeah so it struck me where did richard feynman get that idea yeah that idea came from a polish philosopher scientist mathematician named alfred korzybski korzybski yeah korzybski he actually but started but what feynman have known I, that no no he he said that i do not know who used this concept but he used the concept these are uh, concepts of so that's the point that kunal is making kunal that you start using something free floating concepts the concepts are there you do not know who is the source of that concept the time binding right that's And very interesting it's be one word if he says to the students of high school that if you want to say what is the most scientific word right he said the time binding is the most apt expression to tell you what science is it's so nice so it's, it's so science beautiful. what is time binding yeah and yeah. that connects science with mathematics to humanities right you, you talked about a very interesting thing about the love yeah. for beauty yeah uh, i think uh, in my view beauty is that simplicity that right. one can arrive at to talk about a complex thing 
right right and i think in my view that is beauty right when uh, all one could do is come up with a very simple thing uh, that people could consume without <laughs> understanding how complex of a thing went behind so complicated to complex to simple correct almost. so i think beauty right. is in my view you know the simplicity of of trying to you know uh, one person or one science or one one niche area getting there and and creating something so beautiful that is easy to consume and it's so simple uh, that it creates another level of progress for something else right it almost creates a platform or or creates a i don't know adds fuel to that particular uh, that's beautiful no that's that's great i think it's a great note uh, to i don't know maybe uh, and beauty is extremely difficult to define i mean i, I don't think it's possible to define it at all sure. correct uh, correct i mean for instance uh, a painting by picasso i mean I, what is beautiful about it is what i would like to know right right it often it disturbs right. is that the characteristic of beauty right should beauty right. disturb right and that's beautiful that's beautiful i beauty think that's a great note to maybe end the discussion on um, i think eventually epistemy or api something has to come out of whichever field one is in and uh, thank you so much for making it it's been great speaking to all of you and we look forward to having you soon again thank you thank you so much sure thank you thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.